This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 162 brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the EnlistedBoard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Vinoth Jayakumar, fintech partner at Draper Esprit, one of Europe's largest tech VCs who started way back in 2006. They have investment in the likes of Revolut, TransferWise, Thought Machine, Cedars, Crowdcube, and many more, so might know a thing or two about fintech. Draper Esprit, like Augmentum, who we had on the show last year, are a listed AIM and thus can offer venture capital finance not tied to the cycle of underlying funds, the so-called patient capital model. So without further ado, let's dive into a show to look at the super big picture question of what we can learn from a decade in UK fintech. What particular things worked well? What particular things didn't? What are the lessons that one of London's top fintech VCs takes away from it all in terms of where this is going. Plenty to talk about, so for once, let's not waffle on and dive straight into the show. Good morning, Vinoth. Thank you for remotely joining me on the show today. Hi, Mike. Very nice to be here uh, and excited to be on this podcast with you. Excellent. Well, I'm surprised that you're excited to be on the podcast because you said you listened to quite a few. So I would have thought you're approaching it in the same way that I approach a sort of a root canal filling in the diary next uh, a Tuesday. I'd say this, right? I, I've been uh, up in Harrogate the last few weeks and uh, the, the last two weeks in particular, I've been listening to you at five o'clock every day on my 45 minute oh, run. God. So I've, uh, I've clocked a lot of Mike Bellerman time in my mind. <laughs> oh dear, oh, oh dear, and you still, you still turn up. Now, you kindly shot yourself in the foot, actually, when we're having a little sort of preparation before this in terms of some sort of banter to kick off with, and that uh, you kindly reminded me, which had entirely slipped from my mind, that the last time we had a, a listed fintech fund VC on the show, Mr. Tim Levine, he was training to play football for England in Mexico and uh, involving himself in very strange suggestions to his wife, such as getting a low oxygen tent for the bed, which uh, naturally she kicked that one into touch. So that seems to set quite a good bar for your your vertical. So how are you going to beat that one? Are you sort of playing uh, anything for anybody? I'm afraid I, I, uh, I can't top that by Tim, you know. Team GB, Mexico, that story is just amazing. When I was really young, I uh, was pretty good at badminton. I kind of progressed through the ranks. Uh, and actually, I qualified for the national uh, state team of Kuala Lumpur, which is where I was born and raised. Oh, you're from KL. Oh, excellent. You were in KL, actually, last autumn. And I was absolutely astonished by the growth of building. I mean, there were skyscrapers everywhere. As in, I, I remember going to KL the first time over 30 years ago when it was still kind of English and colonial, and maybe even had the race course yeah. in, in the middle. It's still there, actually. Is yeah. it? I would, you couldn't, couldn't see it for all the buildings. We were staying in the Mandarin Oriental near the Patronus yeah. Towers yeah. and, you know, that nice little park. But boy, has it changed. It has indeed. There was this huge wave of development, and it was called Vision 2020. You know, and I remember being a, a, a young kid in school when this vision was set up. Obviously, we're in 2020 now, and we actually have not achieved the status because we're supposed to be a developed nation by now. But interestingly, we've have, we have all these skyscrapers, but we haven't met some of the requirements 
to become a developed nation just yet. Yes, well, as I was on holiday, I wasn't bothering to find out. But I did wonder what all those skyscrapers were full of. Anyway, let's steer away from Malaysia uh, as a background in finance, because they have been involved in some financial transactions, raising some attention recently, and go into the far more interesting topic of, of badminton. So when you said badminton, I thought, well, I wonder whether that's taken seriously. And I did actually have, funny enough, Malaysia in, in my mind, because out in Asia, for some reason, it's quite popular maybe because you don't get as hot as a uh, tennis I, <laughs> I think it's more that more that we are used to living in 35 to 37 degrees i mean i grew up in in, in an average of 34 35 36 right with with uh, just standard air conditioning in some buildings but generally you're out and out and about schools are 35 all the way through and so i'm kind of used to so it so the last week in the southeast of england has been perfectly normal for you when uh, for listeners abroad uh, it has been has literally been 34 35 my bedroom has not gone below 30 well the irony is that it's it's less humid in england than in malaysia and so i actually sweat less and so it's more desirable than malaysia interestingly but anyway the, the, the badminton story was i was pretty good i got an offer to go to this sports school at a pretty young age where what they do is they train you up to be professional athletes and then make the Olympic squad and all that kind of stuff. But what that would mean is generally a bit of sacrifice on academics. It's always seen as a bit of a sacrifice on the academics. And, uh, you know, my parents sort of being second, third generation Malaysian Indians, they weren't so keen on the sacrifice on the academics piece. <laughs> and so they're like, well, you know, get your straight A's and, and uh, get a degree and, you know, do the normal stuff. <laughs> Yes, it's funny how these small things in life, it's as if God or your parents, there's not a lot of difference when you're young, I guess, change the points for you and suddenly your train goes down one direction and you end up miles and miles away from the other direction. I, I always, at that point, think of this sort of theory of multi, the multiverse theory that uh, in a different parallel universe, there's a Vinoth who's a sort of the world badminton champion or something. And it kind of be nice to get together and compare notes. I wish, I wish. I mean, the closest I ever came to playing anything interesting or at an interesting level is I made so I ranked number 12 in the whole of Kuala Lumpur right which is just outside the top 10 so when Kuala Lumpur played the Japanese national team because I didn't make the top 10 I still got to play as a backup player but they fielded me against the women the Japanese national women's team and obviously national versus state is quite a different thing so I probably got thrashed in probably like 20 minutes flat or something I can't remember the exact score or anything like that but it was the only time I ever got to don the shirt and the flag and all that stuff so it's kind of a small claim to fame as it were <laughs> ah, well i think that probably does beat mr levine in that you sort of did represent your country at, at a young age but as my mind is now now full of you being thrashed by the japanese ladies team it's probably a very good time to to rapidly move on change the points of this podcast onto your career journey so you were very good at badminton uh, and your parents thought that doing it doing sums and exams might be quite helpful and what happened next why did you leave one hot humid country for one that's been briefly hot and not so humid well actually i i, uh, I came here for university so i i studied in london at the london school of economics and promptly as a as a graduate of the school ended up in a in a korean finance so i had a very short stint in at an investment bank and then i actually took some time out so i went to china for a year to learn Mandarin oh, cool. and to teach English and travel and, and all of that kind of stuff. And then I came back, I joined a boutique management consulting firm, which was the only firm of its kind that allowed you to also qualify it as a chartered accountant. And so I did that for about six and a half years, qualified as a, as a chartered accountant and worked on various different financial services, consulting gigs, which were, you know, four to eight week sprints as they were, uh, you know, 100 slide decks master at excel and all that kind of good training you get when you do consulting you hate it when you do it but you know all the years later you kind of 
go about kind of appreciate the skills you learnt. Yes, it's uh, interesting actually how many um, people around that do know some Mandarin. Shout out to Alexandre Gaillard. Hello, Alexandre, if you're listening. Last time I caught up with him for breakfast, he was telling me he listens to Mandarin podcasts, which is a pretty cool thing, actually. The, the only Mandarin I know, and I definitely can't do the tones, is something along the lines of Juni Shangzhou Kuai Le. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> yeah. but, well, Bridget and I are actually doing sort of an in- Taoist internal alchemy course at the moment, which is the sort of uh, nearest to China. And actually, it's very interesting just on that. It actually does relate to innovation. So donkeys years ago, I read a, a, an interesting book called Opening the Dragon Gate or something like that about the complete reality sect, the Dragon Gate sect of, of, of Taoism. And this was all about 15, 20 years ago. And I thought it was a work of fiction. I mean, talking to 250-year-old turtles who talk back and, you know, talking to the sky dragons and, and all this kind of jazz. And I thought it was totally fictitious about a chap called Wang Li Ping. But anyway, then back in the day, Wang Liping turned up and uh, was busy healing Boris Yeltsin as a result of the sort of Chinese premier. And he is the head of the Dragon Gate sect. And this kind of Taoism is super, super, super esoteric and super unknown. But coincidentally, co- you know, simultaneousness, there are two online courses that have opened up roughly at the same time at the moment, doing basically internal energy work from the, the Dragon Gate uh, sect. So the world is changing, not just in the FS and fintech world that we're all so familiar with. But this sort of digital stuff is, a, is affecting not just content delivery, but social stuff. I mean, Taoism survived for 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 years, pick whatever number you want, in China by being utter sort of, you know, my lips to your ear kind of stuff and, and don't tell anyone else. And the whole world is, is changing to just to, to, to start off with a cliche, but to start off a cliche talking about innovation and change. Fair enough. Right, good. Okay, that's a good answer, which means we can go into the fintech then. So, I say go into the fintech, but a bit like uh, Taoism, you have to kind of define the words. So, I tend to use the word fintech to mean new providers of FS to the people or to companies, a kind of fin fintech. But fintech as a whole is fin fintech and tech fintech. How do you define this funny word that's been around for quite a while? How do you decide whether someone thinks a fintech or something isn't, or do you not even worry these days about whether it's a fintech and, and therefore it's in your part of the portfolio or it's a something other tech and therefore in one of your other partners? No, we're not territorial or, or precious about any of those things. We, we, we operate and act as one team of 10 partners and, and a team that sort of works out where the best entrepreneurs are and what can we do to help them. But actually, you know, Mike, one of those interesting things is a couple of months ago, I was curious about where the word fintech even came from or how was it coined. So I did a bit of a search and it turns out uh, that according to the New York Times, the word fintech, obviously, which is short for financial technology, was coined by Citicorp when they set up a thing called Financial Services Technology Consortium in 1993. So an interesting, fun, historical fact. And it sort of it sort of takes me back a little bit because, you know, we were talking about what does the history of fintech look like over the last decade? But actually... If you go back a bit further, for me, there are a couple of markers in the sand, as it were, with some of the, the key historical happenings within fintech. You know, in, in 1999, 2000, you had PayPal, which kicked off the first wave of, of fintech. You know, today, the payments landscape has completely evolved around the world with wallets and account-based payments and card-based propositions and all of those things. PayPal is obviously still a behemoth. In 2005 and seven, you had the wave of peer-to-peer lenders, Prosper Lending Club in the US, Zopa pioneering it in the UK. Uh, I was actually an early adopter of, of Zopa. Uh, I, I remember being at that uh, early adopter party that Giles put together in Covent Garden. I, I, I think this is 2007, eight, I, I can't remember exactly when. Wow, that is, that is pretty super because really nobody knew anything about it and, and, and even fewer cared at the time. Neither did I, to be honest, I was just curious. 
I put in a thousand quid. It gave me a better interest than the bank. I was like, what is this? How does it work? And they had a really interesting website that explained how they blend the bonds, which in today's world is kind of how you create a sinking fund. But it was very simplistic as to this is how much risk you want to take. And if you want to take this amount of risk, this is how you do unsecured versus secured. And then you go into oh, people who buy cars versus buy pay off credit card debt. You know, it's like things you can relate to. You know, if somebody's paying off credit card debt, that's more risky than paying off a car because you know that they are, their affinity towards a car is going to be higher. Right? It's just basic stuff like that, which they kind of helped educate the average ordinary person. Anyway, going back to the sort of timeline of stuff. 2007, we saw the wave of M-Pesa in Africa. It became the sort of the poster child for mobile payments. Uh, turns out, you know, uh, back in my previous job, we'd done a bit of work for Vodafone. And Vodafone was one of M-Pesa's first partners out in Africa. And one of the things we learned doing that was people in Africa trusted their mobile phone networks more than they did the banks. Yes, yes. And yes. so they would rather put their money under their pillows or put it in mobile credit. And so the telcos basically saw this as an opportunity to create banks or financial services ecosystems. And M-Pesa was that sort of market leading product. You just give me an interesting idea, which is at the rate the UK finances are going, maybe I should move my sort of uh, small amount of funds into, into telephone credits. As a sort of rather safe, <laughs> well, you, I don't think you're going to get any yield on that. So I'd be, uh, I'd be cautious. <laughs> at least it may not be a negative yield and like sort of guilt or all these things I keep reading about, but don't really follow these days. Yeah, 2009, we saw uh, the first release of Bitcoin. Off the back was what is now the seminal white paper that Satoshi Nakamoto wrote in 2008. He set the, the tone for the 21 million coins through to 2040. Obviously, the, the founding partner of Draper, or what was DFJ, Tim Draper is one of the most prolific crypto investors in the world. In 2011, we saw Google Wallet, which for me, you know, was a really interesting first foray into how you use your mobile phone in payments using the NFC chip. I should flag that these are things that were... I think salient to my mind, as opposed to truly being, you know, the markets in the sand yeah, 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 yeah. of fintech. 2015, we saw Alibaba pioneer face authentication. You know, this is well before the iPhone made it famous. So, you know, Jack Ma was kind of very much ahead of the curve. And we see that a lot out of Chinese fintech. 2015 was also when Ethereum was launched. So the Ethereum blockchain became a new model for how you could build on top of it. Uh, and also kind of, you know, launching the, the decentralized finance movement. 2014, 15, 16, you've, we in the UK saw the challenger banking boom, the Revoluts, Monzo, Starlings uh, in Europe, N26. 2017, 18, there was the ICO boom. We had one or two portfolio companies try to launch their own ICOs. I'm not sure where we've landed on those. Uh, they've increased complexity, whether it's through a utility or a security token. And actually, I think VCs haven't quite gotten comfortable with how you interact with, with equity versus ICOs. And then 2019, I think the big thing that happened for me last year was the Apple Goldman Sachs nameless, faceless card. That was a brilliant sort of invention. 2020, I don't know yet. I think the only thing that's really happened is uh, a couple of large interesting transactions such as the Encino IPO or, or, or so, uh, Galileo being acquired by SoFi. I know you. I shouldn't laugh, but that would sound very good to sort of written, written down. This is definitely a focused VC for you. In 2020, the only interesting thing that's happened, mentioned some financial transaction. <laughs> There's a virus going around, but let, let's get on to that later about the future. Okay, well, that's interesting. So I, I like hearing your history because by now the whole phenomenon, uh, as you say, is going on so long. It's so complex that you need an encyclopedia to, to write it up. And it's a bit like a thread in a weave. I quite like the way that you're looking at the sort of the tech backbone of it, because in a sense, it's technologies that, you know, it's like a sort of the spine of a Christmas tree that you can hang the sort of branches on and the, and the baubles on the branches and, and all that kind of jazz. And obviously, in the short time available, we can't 
cover this whole encyclopedia as a whole, but in terms of the successes, would you like to pick out two or three that you think have been sort of quite outstanding? And, and, and in a sense, again, just uh, at a high level, what kind of two or three factors you think were really important for that, insofar as you know, these people who are entrepreneurs lower down the pyramid than the, the mega successes of the last sort of decade or two, uh, can actually take away from this podcast, the idea that um, they need to focus on X or Y. Last time's podcast was with a great entrepreneur, Clay Wilkes, about what makes a great entrepreneur and a number of things that he said were, were very good for us all to emphasize in our lives. Talking a lot of this stuff, uh, just, just hearing you there, one of my takeaways is that, I mean, PayPal's a good example. One of the things that really helps you go viral successfully is to be relatively simple. I've got a simple proposition. I've got this thing called a headache tablet. Here it is. You've got a headache? You take this, you'll be fine. <laughs> it's really easy for you now to spread that message. You know, in five seconds, you've got a message that you can tell your neighbor kind of stuff. You're a VC, so you probably get even, even more than I do, but I get hundreds of emails a month. You know, I, I look through them and I haven't got a clue what they're doing. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, there's a plethora of companies innovating in various different niches. And some of these niches add up to be quite big things. You know, and so uh, you know to anchor to anchor the the conversation here. Uh, first of all, I realized I didn't quite fully answer your previous question, which is you know how do we think about verticals? Broadly speaking, we just kind of think about it as B two C versus B two B. I know you can cut it up into various different slices. We don't quite do that because we sort of do twelve to fifteen deals a year. So there's no point sort of breaking it up into various different pieces and trying to figure out what we do in which piece because we're only going to do a few. In, in, in fintech, as it were, but you know, broadly in in the B two C space, we look at the challenger banking plays and also the neo broking plays. So you know, we are investors in the likes of Revolut and N26, and also investors in free trade. I think you know, if you look at the successes, we've got two of Europe's most valuable fintechs out of London, Transferwise and Revolut. Both of them, I think, now in the five to five and a half billion valuation range. You have Klarna out of the Nordics, also at, at five and a half, five and a half billion valuation range. If you think about sort of the genesis for where these plays came from, there's a serious amount, serious amount of angst amongst people who are looking for fundamentally different basic products, right? So if you if you peel the layers back, say let, let's take a let's take a Revolut for example, what they did really well right at the get-go was to build a very simple product card-based proposition that solved one big pain point seamlessly. And in that case, it was just travel money at uh, interbank rates, right? Nobody could really access them. Even if you could, you had to be privileged in some way. And, and actually, theoretically, the amount it saved for people might not have been that much. But because of the user experience, it made them get hooked into the ecosystem, right? And as a result of that, they managed to reinvent what banking could look like. Because I have this debate with a lot of ex-bankers, some of them within my own portfolio, where you know they they say you know these revolutes the monzos the starlings they're never going to work because the big banks can just crush them the big banks can discount the big banks can offer high interest rates and all that kind of stuff and i say well actually i think you're not approaching it from the from the mindset of these founders so using the revolute example they have fundamentally reinvented what banking looks like you know one of the main things is for example they've invented what i would call the amazon prime or the spotify of financial services. Why do people pay $6.99 or $12.99 a month for banking when banking in the UK is generally free? It makes no sense. I don't know. I've wondered that myself. What is the main reason? To my mind, I think there's two things. The first is you cross the trust chasm. I trust you with my money. I know it's safe and I know you will do what you say you will do with it. So if I'm making a payment to you or if I'm making a payment at a, at a merchant, at a shop, 
it will transact successfully properly with real-time notifications, right? The second is the complete user experience of how you do it. So you got the trust element and you got the user experience element. And I think if you combine both those things, people start to think about how they interact with their money in a completely different way. And Revolut's then piled in a whole bunch of other value add stuff like insurance and concierge and travel perks and all of that kind of stuff, which people have historically not gotten from their banks. So now the bank is thinking about how can I be more of use to you as opposed to here's where you keep your money and do stuff with your money. This is more of a every tier of my life. This is what I do with it. You know, Revolut's now also thrown in the uh, children or youth accounts, you know, where you can help your children learn how to use money and set rules and all that kind of stuff, which is, you know, it, it just takes you deeper and deeper into the ecosystem. I see. So hearing you say that makes me think that there are sort of uh, stalactite and, and stalagmite. Uh, stalagmite grows from the ground upwards and stalactite comes from the, the ceiling down. Ultimately, they're trying to get the same point. And going to, to Clay, who's been a successful entrepreneur and his particular rules, and going back to Taoism, there's no absolute truth. It's relative to circumstances. I mean, one of the things was one of his maxims, which is to start a business on day one, you know what the business model is, which I call the stalactite. So, ah, look, I, I'm going to sell my London FinTech podcast hoodies. Actually, I'll sell you one later. If you've been listening, you must be really excited about the prospect at the moment. And I could do with some long-term patient capital, about 30 or 40 years would probably be sort of required for me to, to break even, but I'm, I'm sure that that'll be fine with you. So I know at the beginning, I'm going to sell a hoodie for 20 quid and I'm going to, cost of manufacturer is sort of five and, and cost of customer acquisition is five and, and, and that kind of jazz. And then I just try and do more of it. The other way around is perhaps something of a tech paradigm, which is that, you grow a huge business and a huge customer base and, and once you've got that, there's going to be some way of monetizing it, which is the sort of the, the, the bottom-up thing. Now, it's not a question of, uh, of right or wrong. They've each got disciplines and you may well in your portfolio, I'm sure, have some that started off with a business model on day one. Hey, look, this makes sense, you know, per unit sale and here's the arithmetic and we just need to do more and you need to do the other ones. Now, one thing which I'm not sure whether it's a success or a failure, actually, I, I, for me, it's neither a success or a failure, is the P2P market. Going back to your sort of uh, Covent Garden party with Joe, in the noughties, uh, or maybe fast forward a little bit once funding circle and, um, uh, and rate setter got going in 2010, 12-ish. Uh, certainly a few years ago when Lending Club was being floated, I mean most of the sort of founders of, uh, of Peter Peers and I knew, the, the super mega ones in, in London, were sort of wondering what to do with the sort of 100 million or 200 million that they might get by Christmas kind of thing. Right. And it hasn't exactly turned out that way. I always had a sort of simple line on this, which is that Zopa threw in the towel. In terms of making money purely buying it being a P2P and it's expanded into banking, it's fine that you can take different views on that. That's just, that's my particular view. More recently, we've seen that sort of rates are sold for quite a low upfront sum, two and a half million, although maybe it's a little bit more. But whatever it is, peer-to-peer didn't succeed sort of astronomically as it was hoping to along the lines that, look, this is just much cheaper. Banks are these big things. They've got all this stuff going on. Anyone's been inside a bank, knows there's tons of stuff going on. My God, that's expensive. All we do is got money coming in and money going out. Let's make that cheaper, which was potentially a kind of knock the ball out of the park model in 2005 or 2010 or even in 2015, I, I, would, I would argue. But it hasn't been. So do you count P2P as a success because it's created something that didn't exist as a failure because whoever the investors were, I've forgotten now, in rate setter probably didn't get a massive ROI on their sort of uh, capital which has disappeared? Or do, you, or, or do you count it as something that's sort of still in the, in the middle and just evolving? I think it depends on how you define success or failure. I think if it's purely on a financial return perspective, then that's pretty straightforward to measure. Right. It looks like, and I don't know the exact numbers of how the early investors got in and what valuations and all of that, but if you look at the exit valuations versus what you think would have been some of the reported numbers in the press, obviously it has not been a good return financially. But I think what is important to think about is the 
the reason for being. Why do these products exist? Because I think fundamentally there is actually a need in the market for a product like this. The challenge the players in the market have had, you know, for example, whether it's SOPA or Rate Setter or, or Funding Circle, is that most of them are marketplace plays. And so they are scaling two sides of this marketplace, demand side and supply side, right? And so you got on one side, you have the capital and on one side, you have the people you lend to, right? The, the borrowers and the lenders. Now, for a young company coming into this market, you're never going to get favorable rates from a, from a capital provider, right? So by almost from the get-go, things are slightly stacked against you because you need to lend at favorable rates, but you can't access capital at favorable rates. So you're going to have this net interest margin pressure, right? Typically either close to zero, or sometimes even negative to kind of get into the market, right? And what's happened, I think, for many of these players is they either think of themselves as platforms, so they are allocating somebody else's capital and then along the way they take a fee, or they are actually balance sheet players. Now the balance sheet player requires a much longer term take on the quality of the credit and you know you know this you, you you've run risk books before is to think more about you know what are the cash flows on this type of book look like further down the road what are the default rates look like typically quite a lot of the lending is in unsecured lending right and so it is much harder to underwrite but you also have this explosion of data availability so a lot of these guys are able to now read and un underwrite new types of data that you don't get from Experian or Aquifax Right. That might be social media, it might be job board listings. Uh, in fact, there's an, actually a very interesting company called AIRE, A-I-R-E, which is kind of the, is it a new... He was on the show uh, earlier in the year. Right, okay. So you, you know all about it. Uh, you know, the, the way in which you think about that is also the very same data that's been now democratized through open banking or general availability on the internet, everyone can access that. So it's no longer special, right? So now everyone can underwrite the same data. It's how you underwrite it. I think regardless of how you've chosen to underwrite it, the net interest margin pressure hasn't changed. So the only thing you can really do is to underwrite as well as you can so you don't make a loss, right? So you've got a top line versus bottom line debate. And I think where we are now, I think we're, what is it now, 15 years forward from, from founding of most of these companies, we're still seeing that same pressure apply. Yes, I mean, hearing you speak, I think one thing that sort of leaps out to me, and certainly the market has been evolving for some time before regulatory pressures kicked in, which have been another challenge to innovation as a whole, as everything is sort of made more round peg or square peg and, and, and triangles get sort of regulated out, is that, as you say, they were trying to do two different things. On the one hand, they were doing what banking has always done, which is to grow a credit portfolio. And as you say, different words, how hard can it be? Well, the answer is harder than you might imagine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it is the single largest vertical to, to apply yourself to, right? Absolutely. Banking's been at it for centuries, but you know there are centuries of examples of it. Uh, it's a bit more of a challenge than you might think. And on the other side, they were trying to reach all these retail people and sort of track them and blah, blah, blah. Now, of course, on that side, that, was, that evolved pretty rapidly, especially starting in the US with just institutional funds coming in. You know, it's much easier to sort of get, I don't know, 50 mil from somebody or the government or something like that, and then go and buy your credit portfolio. So I think the first thing is they were trying to do two things. And I think then the second thing, and I did make this point at the beginning, but, well, I say the beginning, but, you know, 2014-ish, 2015-ish, but at the time it was sort of hype and excitement and, uh, and updraft, which is that the idea, which is correct, which is their cost base is lower than, for the sake of argument, HSBCs or Citigroups or something. Yes, that's fine, but the practical challenge is that they are taking £1 in and giving £1 out. Mm -hmm. Whereas, for the sake of argument, keeping it simple, a bank takes £1 in, prints 9 and sends 10 out. Therefore, roughly speaking, fact-packedly, it wasn't a question that they had to be more efficient than banks. I'm sure they are, but they had to be 10 times 
for the sake of argument, more efficient, whilst growing two businesses as evolving companies. Anyway, so as you say, they carry on. Um, Lending Club is still there, funding circles uh, on the stock market. I was talking to somebody that knows the credit market for SMEs uh, extremely well indeed yesterday, and they were telling me that one of the problems in the UK for fintechs, um, and this is a different uh, topic entirely, is that the government has somewhat nationalised the the lending market with all these sort of various schemes and, and all that kind of jazz. But let's come back to the future later. Okay, so before we look at sort of uh, failures, we mentioned Revolut uh, uh, as an example of a company that uh, not just you like, but uh, everyone else likes in terms of the valuations. Are there any one or two other themes that you can pick out, Vinoth, about the kind of things that have driven uh, astronomical success or even pretty good success that you think could be copied and, and the market and, and new founders could be doing more of? I think one of the things that stands out for me is things like Klarna, obviously a, a, a European success story. Now, the buy now, pay later market is nuanced and there are lots of different takes on it. There are lots of moral debates about should you be encouraging people to buy on credit and pay later and what does that all of that do? And my view on that is actually if you educate people early enough in their journey that actually credit is something you should smooth out over the long period of your life as opposed to big bang events. You know, not rack up credit card debt just out of university and then get a job and then buy a car and buy a house and then you've got these three big things that have happened. Actually, if you start to think about why are you using this type of cash flow in a certain way? You know, what is your income like? What are your outgoings like? If you can get people earlier onto that educational curve, then credit gets thought about in a very different way. And, and something like Klarna plays an important role, I think, in that journey. And for listeners who are not familiar with Klarna, Klarna's basic business is? It's a buy now, pay later player. They sell through merchants. So they sign up the likes of uh, H&M and, and online retail merchants, even offline retail merchants. And you can buy something for £100 and pay over six months or 12 months. Consumer finance. Consumer finance, point to sale, retail finance in some ways. They, they, they are nuanced to two different markets for this retail finance or not. But fundamentally, yes. And what do you think one or two of their top key factors of success have been? Because obviously that market is, is around. So how come they've got to sort of five or, or six billion? You know, what one or two things did they do brilliantly well to get to the kind of leadership position they have? I think the, the one thing they did do really, really well is to build a very slick user interface that fit into the checkout mechanism for a merchant. Well, and this is a highly sensitive part of the code process for a, for a merchant. For example, most merchants have code freeze on their websites for large swaths of the year. The reason being they're big sales moments, you know, Black Friday, summer sales, Christmas. During all these times, they're never going to let you change anything on the checkout page, right? What Klarna did is say, actually, this is a conversion play. And this is also something that's going to be really easy to do without affecting how your checkout process works. So I think that's one thing they did really well. And the second thing is on the consumer side, they've also managed to do the educational piece and again the user interface piece with consumers who are having to make the repayments pretty simple whether that's by card or direct debits or whatever it is it's very very simple and slick i see so one of the things that connects the Klarna and the revolut who are obviously wonderful firms from a vc's perspective is that once they get something going well that snowball in the tech globally connected digitized world mumble 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 can roll extremely rapidly and soon turn into something of an avalanche that's right again actually i was talking to a founder yesterday they were relating a, a company who's been, been on the london fintech podcast who had tweaked in some small way a parameter in their offering and then suddenly taken off like that you know it's the, the, the there was a back in the day a chap called earl nightingale 
a sort of motivational speaker in America in the 1950s. There's a great talk, anybody on the show um, wants to listen, uh, Acres of Diamonds. It'll be on, on YouTube. But it, it, I think it was turned into an LP or something. It was just, it was a talk. It was the first million selling LP or something like that in, in America. And he told the story of a, a farmer in Africa that was struggling to make a, a living and, and you know, he struggled for a decade and da 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 and, he, and you know, he sold his farm for nothing, basically. I can't remember the story, it probably came destitute, alcoholic, or something like that. The person who bought his farm found diamonds on the farm, he became astronomically wealthy. The point of the story, of course, being not just literal, as in anybody who's listening to the show who has a farm isn't making money, dig down and see if you've got diamonds, but um, it's more that when you lie on your bed at night, you know, your head is on the pillow. Maybe under the pillow there are acres of diamonds. And maybe you've got a business proposition in FinTech listening, you've got a business proposition. You can just be, as in this example, I don't want to mention it because it's not public, but you, you can be just one tweak away from something that's suddenly going to go whoosh. You know, it's like designing an aeroplane. Your aeroplane ain't flying particularly well. And I don't know, you, you fiddle with a tailplane. And, oh, wow. Which must be a frustrating thing from an investor's perspective. I think this is now... 10 or 15 years ago, there was the uh, lean startup movement, pioneered by Steve Blank and then made famous by Eric Ries. There's a book about it and all that stuff. And that goes to your point about these small tweaks. They broadly call it A-B testing, but the small tweaks that add up, they compound, and then they create a movement. And that's the one that kind of generates the momentum, right? And I think great companies do that a lot at high speed in, in, in quick sprints. You know, Revolut's got its team set up in a certain way that allows them to do that at high speed. I don't know the in, in and outs of Klarna, but I imagine they do have the same setup. Spotify, for example, made famous the squads model in terms of how they do testing and, and development. If you look at the culture of how these companies are set up, they are almost by definition designed to take advantage of these small tweaks at high speed to know whether they'll work or not. And when one, one does, they can do the next one and then it compounds. So I think that's the bit that I don't think any VC can predict. And I think you've just kind of got to let the entrepreneur do what they do best. And I think when you see the momentum rolling in for a later stage VC like, like myself, you know, we can then pile in. But again, it's, it's a function of letting the entrepreneurs do what they do. Maybe we should talk a little bit about some of the failures. Uh, I'll sort of set the ball rolling here with one of the things that you shouldn't do, which hopefully everybody knows already. But for those people who don't know it, they can learn the lesson, which is the, one of the firms that was uh, very good at fintech and was very good at sort of chucking small pennies in loads of directions, getting the feedback and finding which direction worked and then chucking more pennies and that refining it, was Wonga. And they were very, very successful for quite some time. And nobody does mention them anymore. And everyone looks at their shoes when you do, because one of the sort of simple lessons learned is don't make up the names of lawyers who don't exist and, and write letters out. So there was a, something of a control issue around there, uh, which was a trifle unfortunate. And I'm tempted to say that's ad hoc because no other fintech off the top of my head has written letters from lawyers who don't exist and, and therefore sort of shot themselves in the foot. But in a broader context, we had Wirecard this year who also had control issues. And in terms of my book, one of the things I emphasise is that if you've got listed company governments, most of that is, is a procedural and, and b bureaucratic these days. But actually, the, the chief concern, even before it was, was if you if you or I are suddenly on the board of HSBC tomorrow, we're not worried about HSBC's fire going out overnight. We are slightly worried that we're coming in, in, in tomorrow morning and, I don't know, HSBC sort of uh, Penang has blown up or something. You know, some branch we didn't even know doing something we didn't even know about. So a lot of, uh, you know, listed governance is about making sure there ain't an explosion. There's so much steam, there's so much fire, there's so much water that the risk is an explosion. When you're in a small co, if you take a, a couple of weeks off, your small co can die if it's a tiny, if it's like one person or two person. If you get run over by a bus or something like that, your, your business is going to go out. So... For me, 
the journey of a startup. You and I have an idea in a pub, and then one day we're, li we're listed on the FTSE. The journey is one from corporate creativity to corporate control. Having said that, it is very easy to overemphasize pure corporate creativity. And you, you sit on many boards, you will, you will know this. And it's really important for quite a long time in businesses that they're, they're, it's really creative on the board and the board's helping them, help them grow. But at the same time, it's very easy to get excited. And this happens in old FX. I mean, Halifax is another you know, example. It's very easy to forget, especially in finance, that control is also important. I'll start with one lesson learned, which is that you must do corporate control. Don't make it 110% in your board meetings being corporate control. You want some corporate creativity. But when the control goes wrong, you can have built a great business with much pain, much VC money. You can be really successful. Then, oh, fuck, the whole thing's blown up. Shit. And then it's too late. It's like when you're a kid, you kick your football through your parents' plate glass window. The window's broken. You can't stick it back together. If controls affect, what other lessons about things that didn't work out? There's a difference between the stage at which the company is starting to think about this stuff, right? A, a, a angel funded seed company or even up to series A, most of the teams are still slightly grappling in the dark. They can see the vision, they're trying to get there and some of these balls might get dropped. Not intentionally, but accidentally or overlooked and all of that kind of stuff. Usually by the time you come up to a Draper Esprit investment, which is series A and B, more B than A, then at that point, all of these things do get put in place right at the get go. You know, the step one is the structure of the board. What is the voting structure like? Uh, what are the things that the board needs to consent on? And what are the things that the investors need to consent on? Uh, step two is to have other sub-boards, things like remuneration committees, audit committees that look into how the company operates. So normally with a Draper Esprit investment, those three things get set up right at the get-go. Usually, sometimes they're already done, but if they're not, then we get them set up as we start in the first few weeks or months of being involved with the company. I think the, the, the driving point, though, is the CEO, the entrepreneur's mindset. You know, how do they think about internal controls? Do they think it's a, it's a slightly loosey-goosey thing and we can kind of push it around and see where it goes? It depends on the sector you're in. If it's regulated, FCA regulated, then there is no pushing around. You know, there is black and white. So, you know, I think when it comes to how we think about things like that, there is a rule, for me at least, you know, all things are sort of fair in competition. As long as you don't cheat and you don't break the law, you know, that everything is fine, but just think about the consequences. And obviously the single biggest currency you have is your integrity. So never compromise that. Absolutely. And plenty of founders wins about VCs in the way that sort of VCs, when they're in the bar, whinge about founders. It's their kind of dynamic. But VCs bring two things apart from the obvious of capital and expertise. And your mileage may vary in terms of how much of that comes. But one of which is they provide liquidity events. They provide pressure for that. So I've got an investment 25 years ago in a small company. There ain't no VC. Nobody's pressuring the founder. He's turned it into a nice, comfy lifestyle business. I'm never going to get my goddamn money back. So that's one really important thing. And the second, as you say, is actually, you know, somebody like you is a, as I call you, a professional boarder. You professionally go to board meetings. You go to many, many, many. You've got lots of experience. A first-time founder may not have been to a board meeting in his life. You know, and yeah. the, the, the seeds and the, the kind of stuff. So they don't know what they, they don't know. We talked about controls. I mean, one of the things that's, in a sense, a failure, I wouldn't use that word myself. I would just say a fascinating experiment that hasn't panned out like the hype five years ago. Nothing pans out like the hype five years ago, which is Bitcoin, which is from one 
perspective, it's been the most astronomical success in fintech. If you bought one Bitcoin whenever it was 12 years ago, then uh, you could have your own badminton team and your own badminton um, stadium by now. So that's been a brilliant investment. Having said that, it's sort of gone up and down and gone up and down. And uh, it does kill polar bears, which is a little bit unfortunate. And, and we hope the next iteration doesn't kill polar bears. How do you see something like uh, Bitcoin and other cryptos? Crypto in general, we are extremely bullish on and positive on. I would say that partly because we are invested in the segment. Tim Draper is one of the largest Bitcoin owners in the world. But I think the important thing is what has it set off? You know, as a result of that seminal piece of work by Satoshi Nakamoto in 2008, what has it made us think about? You know, what does it mean for currency as a store of value or a currency? What does it mean to be decentralized outside of a banking system? And I think, you know, it puts power back in the hands of people. And so that means that you start to think about new forms of innovation that were never possible before. And so what I'm excited about, for example, is decentralized finance. You know, all the various use cases that you can get out of a blockchain-based model, whether it's with a cryptocurrency or not, you can have mortgages that are in the decentralized world. You can have savings accounts that are in the decentralized world. That, I think, completely kind of removes the boundaries and borders of how you think about money. Now, yes, you do have the regulatory point of view. I really like the FCA stance on, on Facebook's Libra project. In fact, I, I don't know where the Libra project is now, but I remember reading this in the press, and I think if I'm not phrasing them incorrectly, it was, we would welcome it with an open mind, but not open doors, right? Which is a really interesting thing for a regulator like the FCA to say. I, I consider the FCA the, the, the foremost forward-thinking regulator in the world compared to all the others we've seen. But, you know, it's, it's one of those where it's they're basically saying, look, come and talk to us. We'd love to learn how this works. We'd love to see how it fits in with our thing. But don't assume we'd allow you all the connections into the systemic stuff now, all right? which is a good thing to do. You know, the sandbox is a great success. Right. OK. Regulation is another, another thing uh, entirely. I kicked that around with Sir Paul Tucker. Uh, certainly the UK regulator was for some time leading the way. Um, and I quite, I'd quite i rather go back to the libertarian point you're, you're making, the, this massive state overreach going on right now, left, right and centre. So anything that um, helps remove the state from micro-controlling every aspect of, of our life is something that would please me and, and also please Sir Paul Tucker when he was on the show and, and, and Lord Turner. So very briefly, time has gone on. We, we've kicked around some interesting things. Uh, I hope listeners have got some good ideas for their businesses. Briefly, because uh, again, we could do a whole podcast on this, how are you seeing the world going forwards when you're looking at the millions of applications that no doubt come through your door and people wanting sort of money and all that kind of jazz? What is it that's getting you excited at the moment that makes you sort of wake up and think, wow, I'd like some of that in our portfolio? If I connect it to the thesis that we're building at Draper Spree, you know, going back to one of the earlier questions, there's two broad buckets of things we are investing in in fintech. B2C, historically, we've done the likes of the challenger banks like Revolut and N26. We're also in neo brokers, things like free trade. B2B, which has been a more recent theme, it has actually come about as a result of doing Revolut. We started to explore the technology stack that enables them to be who they are. We are investing actively into payments, core banking systems and fraud. And I think if we look forward, some of the thematics that have become increasingly more exciting, uh, and I think some of, some of these founders you've actually had on your show before, there is a, a huge push towards democratizing access in general. So the free trades of this world, the crowd cubes, the companies like Primary Bid. We are also seeing, maybe it's not so new, but it's embedded finance. Companies that have an edge to distribute financial services because of their position in the market. They don't have to be a financial services company. And we're seeing this example across many different verticals, you know, from 
Google doing Google Bank or Grab, you know, the right-handing company in Asia doing Grab Pay, uh, Amazon Pay, Alibaba and Ant, Tencent, WeChat, WeBank, WePay. You know, that kind of stuff is increasingly becoming embedded into how we think about where the next big outcomes will be. We're seeing interesting models develop in how people get paid. For example, income streaming becoming an interesting topic, real-time pay. We're thinking through a little bit about you know, what the nuances in, in the future of employment would look like. And uh, to give credit to, to one of my friends, Yusuf at uh, QED, he coined a term called the workplace bank. It's an interesting theme to think about because actually most of financial services is about how you capture income or how you capture spend. Every time you touch money, you either make money or lose money, right? It costs something and there's a revenue generation opportunity. And I think if you think more about how people are going to be employed in the future, you will see a larger shift towards freelancing and gig working. And as a result, employers needing to provide benefits and financial well-being and, and a huge sort of swath of products in that space. Excellent. Right. So you're obviously very optimistic uh, about that, uh, Vinoth. As a very lazy person, uh, I find your optimism depressing because that means I'm going to have to be <laughs> podcasting for the next 50 years at this rate. I was rather hoping you're going to say, oh, it's all, it's all over, actually. I think, oh, well, there we go. I don't have to keep podcasting and finding new guests. Anyway, before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there, my brand partner for the podcast, Smart Pensioner, fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. Theenlistedboard.com information and resources to help you make your unlisted board an engine of growth, not a ball and chain or gallows for the founder. So we've mentioned Draperies B once or twice. Are there any particular shout outs you want to give to the listeners out there? What do you want uh, more of in case any of the listeners have it? I just quickly do a, a, a wrap up of who we are and what we do as Draper Esprit. Draper Esprit is a public listed venture capital fund. We started quite a long time ago in 2006. We are slightly later stage, so we're investing in series A and B, more B than A. Those things are labels, but it just means that you know it's typically different stages of companies. Minimum investment to maximum investment generally is? Would be 10 to 30 million, roughly. That's that's what I mean by slightly later stage. As you would be aware, you know, you've had Augmentum on, on, on the show before. Being listed means you're a patient capital fund. The fund is also evergreen, so capital coming back stays with us on our balance sheet as opposed to going back to LPs. LPs benefit by share price rising. And as a result of that, we can kind of do the stuff that takes much longer than 10 years to build. You know, things like Revolut or things like Thought Machine. These are 10, 15, 20-year plays. And so for us, we're excited to be kind of thinking about what the future holds for us in that space. Interesting, yes. And on that point, I always think that the phrase patient capital is no doubt a rod for the backs of the, the likes of you and uh, Tim. So when you're both funding my uh, London FinTech po- podcast, Hoodies Venture, and in, in 20 years time, you're saying, how come you haven't made a profit yet? And I say, I thought you guys were patient capital. Patient and successful, maybe. <laughs> Ah, yes. Ah, Well, actually, I'm going to have to rethink my business plan. I shall send you my 100-page PowerPoint later. Well, thank you for that, Vinoth. I've really enjoyed your tour d'horizon, and I like your optimism. And in particular, I like the way that you look at the past and you see plenty of lessons for how things that can be done better in the future. So I wish you and Draper Esprit every success in the future. Thank you, Mike. That was fantastic. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching a firelight dance Watching the firelight dance 
we could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so gray With the pain of the Mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the fire light dance with me, 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 watch the fire light dance with me,